0: Well, brothers and sisters, good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm Robbie, one of the teaching pastors here. And we continue this morning in our study in the book of Esther. So if you will, turn in your copy of Scripture there with me. We're in Esther chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Esther chapter, Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And if you would hear this, as it really is, God's very own word to us, his beloved people this morning. It begins, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And with the seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not, made known in her, had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised." Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken in to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of, Te- of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, our key truth from these words, what I'm hoping we will most walk away with, having considered these things, is this. Jesus showed his love for us by serving us and suffering in our place in order to make us his bride. Jesus showed his love for us by serving us and suffering in our place in order to make us his bride. Now, let me spend just a quick minute in justifying why we should see this particular truth from these particular words. Because you may be thinking, well, I don't see Jesus here in this text, at least not explicitly. Now, friends, of course, we know, and as Christians, we believe very convinced, we're very convinced of this truth, that The whole, all the pages of the Bible in some way or another point us to Jesus. This was Jesus' own conviction. You remember after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, he meets those disciples and then he begins to open to them from the pages of all of Moses and the prophets how all of this was pointing to him, how all the stories that we read about, including the story of Esther, is in some way preparing us to see and know and to love Jesus. But, of course, this points us to a very interesting reality that I think sometimes we miss, and that is that stories often communicate to us more than the people in the stories know at the time. It's a wonderful fact, in fact, uh, uh, about stories, is they often communicate more than we may even be aware of as we're writing them. Uh, An illustration of this, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, after he wrote uh, The Hobbit, he published it post-Hiroshima, so after the atom bomb had been dropped, many people read The Hobbit and they said, oh, I get it. This is an allegory about the atom bomb. You know, you have the ring and it's this very secretive but powerful weapon that ultimately corrupts those who use it. That's, that's got to be the atom bomb. And Gerald Tolkien said, well, actually, I wrote that part of the story way before I knew anything about the atom bomb. That, that just, it's just incidental that you're seeing in the story an allegory about the atom bomb. But then I think that points to something that's very interesting about stories, especially allegorical stories, is that if they're true to reality, if they mesh with our own experience, we can see lots of application in our own present reality, more than the author may, have, may himself have known at the time. And biblical story is like that in many ways, too. Esther was was in a story that was communicating more to God's people, and in fact, I would argue, more to her and to her contemporaries than they might have known at the time. And so that's why I think it's entirely right for us to see in these words something about Jesus, to see in the contrast to the way that King Ahasuerus treats his wife and the way that he then goes about trying to get another wife to the way that Jesus woos and pursues us as our beloved husband and makes us his own bride. So that's a very important thing, I think, for us to remember about stories and why it is so necessary that we have these stories to baptize our imagination. It's one of the things that the Bible is doing when it presents us these things and why it's so important for us to always be meditating on the stories of Scripture so that our our imaginations are, in a sense, baptized. they're, They're matured. They're grown. We begin to understand more deeply how these things apply to our lives. And so it's entirely right for us to look for Jesus in this particular story. And that's not because, by the way, that Esther doesn't matter. No, not at all. In fact, it's because she matters so much. It's not because that, 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 that she's incidental to the story, but because God is using her in a story that is even greater than she probably had the ability to see at the time. If you're like me, and, and this whole week, I've been reading this chapter over and over and over again, and, and there's a, 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 just a part of it that just makes me almost sick to my stomach. Uh, the, 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 the degrading nature of what Esther is subjected to, and in fact, all the young women who are rounded up in this fashion, it's, it's a sobering reality here that we're presented with. But how would Esther have managed to get through? I think by remembering that God is up to more than we can presently see in any given moment. And of course, we know that being the beneficiaries of being able to read ahead, skip to the next chapter, and you see, okay, here, here's where it's going. We can begin to see that God is on the move. He's going to do something to dignify Esther, to draw her out of this pit, to, to make her not just not commodified, but dignified beyond her wildest expectation. And so we need to see in the stories that God gives to us that the same is happening for us in situations that we might be looking at in the moment and saying, how am I ever going to get through this? This seems so degrading. This seems so horrific. So, yes, it is entirely right for us to see that Jesus shows his love for us by serving us and suffering in our place in order to make us his bride. Now, of course, in this chapter, we're introduced to Esther, the protagonist of, of this story, and we learn a couple of important details about her, not least of all, that she is an orphan. You remember, of course, how often in the prophets and in uh, the, the law of Moses, how often God reminded his people how necessary it was for them to take particular care of orphans. And, and we might say to us, well, or to ourselves, well, you know, that was back in ancient times when to be an orphan was really a horrific thing, but it's, it's still a, a very difficult thing we might say to ourselves, well, yeah, but that's because God's people, you know, they just had so many blinders and they were so self-centered. They really needed to hear that they had a particular duty to take care of the least of those among their society, in their society. Well, so do we. And it's not for nothing that Esther, this particular protagonist in this particular story, is an orphan. And that's one of the main details that were given about her life, that she is an orphan. And she's brought up by her uncle, Mordecai, who from all that we can see is a very righteous man. But there's still a little bit of a wrinkle here because we also know from contemporary, uh, or contemporary with Esther stories, Ezra and Nehemiah, that a lot of Jewish people at this time had already returned to the promised land. The Persian government had given them permission to go back to their land. They'd been in this status of deportation in Babylon, this faraway country, but now they're able to go back and begin to rebuild the temple. Why is Mordecai and Esther still in Babylon? We don't know exactly. It's it's a wrinkle. And we might say to ourselves, well, is this God's judgment for them not returning? You know, they get swept up in all the evil in Babylon and this horrific circumstance. The text doesn't say, but it does point us to Mordecai as a righteous man who brings up Esther in the law of the Lord to teach her her heritage, to teach her who she is as God's beloved. And that makes a great deal of difference to her ability to navigate in the rest of the story. And so, with that introduction, let's see in our text two things that I think it's important for us to to walk away with. And first, by way of contrast, let's see the contrast between two kings, the self-sacrificial and thus non-commodifying and ultimately dignifying, and I would say ultimately humanizing, love of Jesus for his church in contrast to the commodifying, so-called love of King Ahasuerus. And the second thing by implication, this love, the love of our husband, King Jesus, seen in his wonderful providence and his care for you and for me. So first, the contrasting loves of contrasting kings. Now, as we've been saying, King Ahasuerus is presented in this text as a very foolish man. And chapter two really highlights his foolishness. You see it, of course, in his command that uh, earlier in chapter one, that Vashti appear before him and his bibulous friends, his drunken friends, and, and, of course, Vashti refused to be used as a possession in that way. And, and maybe like me, as you've been thinking about this over these past weeks, it's been kind of hard for you, and I don't think it's the wrong thing, it's been kind of hard for you to, to not admire Vashti. At this point in the story, she's kind of the hero, don't you think? I think so. You know, she, she refuses to be used as a possession. And, and later we see here, of course, that after King Ahasuerus has made this decree that she's no longer to be queen, he regrets it. So evidently, she was a very unforgettable woman. She was probably very strong-willed. She probably had her wits about her. She probably had a very good head on her shoulders. She refuses to be used as possession. I admire her. And I think King Ahasuerus did too. But he was very foolish, and he allowed himself to be manipulated by foolish advisors, by, by counselors who, who just gave him really bad and crummy advice. So you see that, you see his foolishness there. You also see uh, his foolishness and his willingness to listen to the absurd advice of Mimucan, one of his advisors, who actually is the one who puts forward the idea that King Ahasuerus should get rid of Vashti. And what makes it all the more foolish is that this was probably, as well as being a celebration, it was probably also a council of war. Now, King Ahasuerus, we know from secular history, is the same Xerxes the I, the one who invaded Greece. So the one who was at the Battle of Thermopylae and the one whose navy was destroyed at the Battle of Salamis later. And, and so this is probably the council of, of war that they held before they launched this, this huge invasion of, of Greece. And, and that was you know the, the very first, well, we're told, the very first history that was written, this very first secular history that was written by Herodotus is filled with all these wonderful details and it's almost shocking to, to read about these things. 60,000 Persian troops march across the Hellespont, the, the land bridge between Asia and Europe. They're under the direction of this king, King Ahasuerus, along with 10,000 troops that were so fearsome they were called immortals. And so they're getting ready to, to launch this big invasion of Greece, and this is what they're worried about? Th- this is what is occupying Mamukin's thoughts? You, you begin to see how foolish th- these guys are, how foolish King Ahasuerus is to listen to these, these advisors. Well, you see also King uh, Hasuerus' foolishness in issuing this intractable command. Not only does he divorce, essentially, Vashti, a woman that he evidently loved and who was very unforgettable, but he also makes it so that he can't take it back. That's a foolish thing to do as well. And, of course, he listens to this self-serving advice later in chapter 2 we see, uh, of his advisors, that uh, he quickly then tried to find another wife. And you can see why they, those advisors in particular would issue this advice, can't you? They're probably really worried that King Ahasuerus, despite this intractable command, he's going to change his mind and bring Vashti back. What do you think Vashti is going to do to these advisors? <laughs> it's not going to be good. So you can see why they're very quick, like, all right, man, you need to get married again. Like, We need to settle this thing. So, But, but again, you see in the hastiness of King Ahasuerus, his very foolish and impetuous character. And you see in his willingness to then condemn the women who are swept up in this foolish endeavor to find himself a second wife in what would amount to basically a life of complete isolation. So he's a very foolish and self-satisfying man. But contrast that, of course, with Jesus. Jesus, our husband, who came to win us as a bride for himself, not by commodifying us, not by listening to foolish counsel, but by suffering in our place. Think about it in this way. Think about it in the way that he issues his invitation to us to leave behind the sin that commodifies us in shame and in the terror of what God's judgment might do to us, to leave all of that behind and to come to him to find our rest in him. See it in contrast with King Ahasuerus that Jesus comes and he refuses to listen to the absurd and irrational advice of Satan in the wilderness temptations. He chooses the path of suffering instead of wicked domination over others. See it in Jesus' patient refusal to listen to the self-serving advice of his family and disciples who often tried to sway him from the way of the cross and the path of suffering and to encourage him to grab earthly power. That might, I, I think, beloved, I think sometimes we, we skip over that too quickly. Do you realize how difficult that might have been when all of your closest family members are saying to you, yeah, I mean, you're better than this, Jesus. You don't have to suffer. You know, just, just do a few miracles. Make your, your power more widely known. People will really love you. They'll make you the king. But Jesus refuses to grab earthly power. Not like King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus, he doesn't think anything of commodifying people for his own earthly pleasure. Not Jesus. To make us his bride, he chooses the way of suffering. See it in his determination to send his disciples to the very end of the earth to gather. Like King Ahasuerus, he does send people out to gather people, but not like King Ahasuerus, he doesn't send people out to gather all the most eligible, best looking, beautiful people in the world. No, he sends his his disciples, he sends you and me out to the very ends of the earth to to gather the, the least eligible, the down and the out, the lowly, the people who are weighty under the burden of their own sin who are filled with all sorts of self-doubt, probably aren't all that fun usually to hang out with. He says, go and gather these people and give them the royal garments. Give them the wedding invitation. See it in his determination in joy to share his eternal inheritance with his bride, the church, to rescue us from the isolation of our rebellion and the death of our sin. See it in his purpose to do all for his people so that we are granted our royal title not by contest, not by a beauty pageant, not by scrubbing ourselves as best we can to make ourselves righteous before him, but by grace alone, through faith alone. Isn't it interesting to, to imagine the Holy Spirit quizzing King Ahasuerus? He invites King Ahasuerus into the room and he says, King Ahasuerus, I've been reading some of your material. Herodotus, he, he tells a great story. Man, it's, it's, it's amazing, all these military campaigns, all this political activity, and I see here even the odd tax breaker too for your people. Good job, that's nice. But, King Ahasuerus, the story I want to tell is how did you treat your wife? You notice that all the details that Herodotus tells us about Xerxes I don't make it into the pages of scripture. How Ahasuerus treated his wife does. That's not for nothing. Uh, we often notice it, don't we, beloved? But sometimes I think we, don't, we fail to really appreciate this truth. The things that matter to God, the things that he is looking for, the way in which he is telling the story, are not usually the things that grab our attention, the things that we write our stories and histories about. And this is not, by the way, this is not the first time that women have been commodified in the halls of power, and it's not the last. We know it even in our own country. How often have we been told, and that's not a political statement for one side or the other, it's both right? How often we've been told, well, you know, don't really worry about that much so much because that's just a distraction from all the good policies they're putting into place. Is that how God responds? Is that how he judges the effectiveness of King Ahasuerus? What, the, the story that the Holy Spirit tells and will continue to tell is how we treated our wives, how we treated our spouses, how we lived out the gospel for our children, how we took the gift of salvation and used it to bless those were less than us. Those who were the down and out in our society. That's the story that the Holy Spirit wants to tell. And it's the story that the Holy Spirit tells in us because we've been united to Jesus, our husband. Here in the way that E.M. Dugan says it in this quote, which I find particularly helpful, what a husband we are being prepared for. What a husband we are being prepared for. Christ is no despot in the mold of a Ahasuerus, eager to use us and dispose of us like so many discarded toys." Such a man would not be worthy of our eager submission. But our husband is Jesus Christ, who loved his bride, the church, with an everlasting love. For our sake, he took on a form utterly without beauty, was despised and rejected by those he came to save, was cut off from the land of the living. In contrast to Esther's 12-month-long course of beauty treatments, our divine husband undertook a 33-year pilgrimage, stripped of his eternal radiance. No comfortable beds and fattening food for him. Nowhere to lay his head and nothing to call his own. Hear this. His pain was the prerequisite for our beauty. I love that. That's the gospel. That Jesus, our husband, came and he suffered and he served so that we would be made beautiful in him. So that's the first thing to see. The contrasting loves of contrasting kings. Secondly, very quickly, see the contrast here. In the love of our divine husband in his providential care for you and for me. Now, this text does not answer the question that is probably most on our minds. It's most on my mind as I think about these words. What did Esther think about all of this? Isn't it interesting that the text doesn't really tell us? It doesn't answer the question, should Esther have gone along with all of this? When we were young, we heard the Daniel story, and we heard the the moralistic lesson from that, right? Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand up in the halls of power and say no. No. I'm not going along with that. You may say that I have to do this. You may even tell me at the point of a sword that I have to go along with that. But no, I'm not going to go along with that. But Esther doesn't do that. In fact, as we read in this chapter, at this point in the story, we are tempted a little bit more, at least I am, to admire Vashti, who's self-willed and strong and says no. But Esther, in contrast, I mean, she's really compliant, right? She wins the favor of the chief eunuch, who's in charge of the harem. It's strange. So what was she thinking about all these things? Well, the text doesn't really tell us. It doesn't really tell us, in fact, what Mordecai was thinking. I mean, we can imagine, of course. It's probably very horrific, probably very difficult. He's very concerned about what's happening to her, so he goes by the harem every day to make sure she's doing okay. She's, she's making it. But it doesn't really tell us what, what was going on in their minds. And I think the reason for that is is that God wants us to really focus here on the way in which he himself is on the move on behalf of Esther on behalf of Mordecai, and ultimately on behalf of the Jewish people there in Babylon. That God is doing something even greater than they could perceive in that moment. I mean, was Esther's silence or compliance here a considered strategy? It may have been. She may have realized, well, I mean, Vashti, she's an admirable, but she can't do anything anymore. She's out. So how am I going to get in so that I can begin to make some changes? Perhaps that was her thinking. The text doesn't say, but what it does point us to is that God is on the move for his people. In fact, unpredictable events, which clearly point to God's activity, are the things that are moving this story along. You see it in the fact that Ahasuerus is a king who's particularly malleable. He's particularly manipulable. He can be moved easily. You see it in the vacancy for a queen and Esther's ability to fill it. You see it in the fact that Esther and Mordecai, they haven't relocated back to the promised land with all of their friends and kin. You see it in Mordecai's later discovery of the plot against Xerxes and is telling Xerxes' court what's going to happen. You see them recording that in the Chronicles of the King. And then you see later in chapter 6, the king Ahasuerus is going to have a, 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 week, a, a night where he can't sleep, insomnia. And so he asks, read back that story to me. He, he does what I sometimes do when I can't sleep, turn on an audio book. <laughs> Just let, let me hear the story and maybe I can fall asleep to that. And then he hears what Mordecai has done and he says, what has been done to reward Mordecai? So unpredictable events are moving the story along and ultimately they're not unpredictable from God's perspective, they're his providential care for his people, helping them to see that he is on the move for them. Now, in the next chapter, we'll meet Haman, who was a Jew hater, as so many have been in history, an agent of Satan from the very pit of hell. And God will take the evil purpose of Haman and the suffering of Esther, her commodification, and bring it together with his good purpose, his loving purpose, to tell a story of his faithfulness and his love. And, beloved, that means most most relevantly for you and for me, there isn't a thing There isn't a thing that God cannot use to bless you and to sanctify you and to save you. Not a thing. I mean, we really are meant to see here, Haman, as just the epitome of evil. A guy who just irrationally has a hatred for God's people and is willing to do whatever it takes to utterly destroy them. And what does God do? He raises up an orphan girl through this commodifying, degrading, objectifying system and makes her queen and uses her advice and the advice of Mordecai to totally outwit Haman and all of his evil plans. Now, you may be looking at your life and you're thinking, well, nothing quite that dramatic is happening to me. Maybe. But there isn't a thing that God can't use to bless you and to sanctify you. God's providence is his care for you and for me in all the particular details of our lives. Isn't it amazing to think that you and I, ultimately, we don't write our own stories. We don't. It's not to say, of course, that we're robots and we're just sort of mechanistically pulled along in this world of events. That's not what it is at all. But we don't write, ultimately, how all these things happen to us. We're involved in the stories. We're gloriously involved in the stories. But God is the one leading and guiding and directing us for purposes that are far bigger than we can see in the present moment. So, dear friends, in God's good will and in his time, we, like Esther, will be cast into situations that will call forth from us, virtue and courage and strength that is greater than we yet possess. And with his help, we will grow deeper in virtue and wisdom and strength. And because we are, we are united to Jesus, our heavenly husband, and in his purpose, we shall be made better than we yet are. And in this providence, God overruling all things for the good of his children and the furtherance of his divine purposes and glory, we shall better see the love of Jesus for us. You will not understand your life particularly well and particularly the troubles of your life until you understand that it is God opening a door for you in all the situations that you face to pass through to newer and deeper understanding of his love. I particularly love the way that Hosea, the prophet Hosea, put it in chapter 2. He said the valley of core, the valley of Accor was known as the valley of trouble in Israel. The valley of core will become a door through which God's people will walk into new understandings of his love. This situation that Esther faced, it was the valley of Achor. It was a door of trouble. And God opened it up so that she could walk through to a better understanding of God's overruling all things for the good of her and for his people. So whatever Esther may have been thinking, whatever you and I may be thinking and the troubles that we sometimes face, the love of God was guiding each of her steps. He would overcome the evil and objectifying intentions of King Ahasuerus, of Haman, and the Persian system in such a way, in such a glorious way, as to magnify his faithfulness and his love and dignify the commodified, beginning with Esther, and reveal his sovereign purposes to unite his people to Jesus Christ. So just a a, a couple questions of application as as we wrap things up. In what ways are you growing in your affection for Jesus? In what ways are you allowing the circumstances that you go through even the difficulties that you may face, to grow your affection for Jesus? And in what ways are you sometimes tempted to adopt a commodified mode of relating to Jesus? You and I may not be like King Ahasuerus in our explicit commodifying of other people, but sometimes we are tempted to commodify even our relationship to Jesus, to begin to think that Jesus will only really respond to us if we do A, B, and C, if we scrub ourselves just well enough. But beloved, this story teaches us, among many other things, that Jesus loves us because he suffered in our place. That Jesus was willing to do all that was necessary for us so that we would not have to beautify ourselves for him, but that he would come and suffering would make us beautiful for him. That's the message of the gospel. And that's why it's so beautiful that we get to come before this table this morning, because that's what this table symbolizes for us too. It's a picture of the great wedding feast that you and I are all headed towards. We don't know exactly when it will be. We don't know when Jesus will return to bring us up into that feast, but we know that it is coming. And in the meantime, he gives us this ordinary table so that we would begin to, be, to have a picture of what is waiting for us. And, and this table also is given to us in the ordinary details of our lives on an ordinary February Sunday to remind us that we're not required to make ourselves better to come before this table because Jesus has done all that is necessary in the broken bread, he reminds us that his body was broken so that we would be made whole. <clears throat> Excuse me, we would be made whole in him. In the poured out cup, he reminds us that his blood was shed for us to inaugurate a new covenant in his name so that we'd be folded into his glorious and divine purposes. And so if you are holding fast to those promises and if you're following in that way, in your love for God and your love for your neighbor, you are welcome to this table. If that story is still a distant and foreign story for you, if you're not quite sure if you believe that, if you're not quite sure that it is really a story for your neighbor, for your brother and sister in Christ, and you're holding a grudge against them, and you're not really sure if you want them to experience what this table means for them, then I say you should let these elements pass you by. Don't stay there. Continue to wrestle with that. Invite people into that process. But for now, let these elements pass you by. It's not a meal that will nourish you. But for everybody else who longs to know more deeply, what does this marriage supper of the Lamb mean for me? How can I grow in my love for Jesus? How can I see in the story of Esther, ultimately, Jesus' love for me? Welcome to this table. Jesus will use these elements. The Holy Spirit will use them to draw your heart up to him so that you see him more deeply and he becomes more beautiful to you. So I get to say that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant. It's my blood spilled for you. Everybody drink of it. That's a wonderful invitation. Everybody drink of it. Come, you who are weary. Come, you who are objectified. Come, you who are commodified, and find rest in the new covenant promises of your divine husband, Jesus Christ for you. I'd invite the elders who will help serve to come forward. And while they do so, just a few instructions for us. We'll pass these elements down each of the aisles. And there are two trays. One is a tray of bread, the other a tray of of juice. And uh, in the juice tray, of course, there's the compact, what we sometimes call the MRE cup. That's the wafer with the juice there. You're welcome to take that. Otherwise, take both of them and hold them. We'll hold them together and then partake together. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for this table. Lord, we're grateful for the heavenly feast that you invite us to, that we know the marriage supper of the Lamb that we are headed towards. In the meantime, Lord, we're grateful for those stories, the story of Esther that reminds us that you are on the move for us, that reminds us that you are the God who loves us, that reminds us that Jesus is our husband. Lord, sometimes we confess that we don't know quite what to do with that. We, we are so primed to think that maybe you might love us. Maybe you will be just willing to get close to us, but to make us your own bride. Lord, how are we to understand these things? How are we to grow in them? Take these elements, Lord, and help us to do just that. Unite our hearts to Jesus. Lift up our hearts to heaven. Help us to see how deeply he loves us. We ask it in his name. Amen.